We're so glad you could join us for the mornings at YCBC today. We want to thank you for being a part of our online family and we hope that this message encourages you, blesses you and helps you grow in your walk with Him. So let's get into the Word. Well, good morning uh, and welcome. Um, we see throughout the Scriptures that God always leaves a remnant uh, and we see on long weekends that God leaves a remnant. And so... Um, Blessed are those who are here this morning and catching online. Um, who's hungry? That's my question before we come to pray this morning. Who's hungry? And I'm not talking about did you skip breakfast. I'm not talking about the hunger of the, the stomach this morning. Uh, who's hungry for God's word? Uh, who's eager to be filled by what God has to say for them this morning? Um, this is one of those mornings where even though I've spent the week... Uh, or more than just a week, but I spent time studying this passage. I'm eager to, to be filled by God's Word this morning, even though I've already spent time in it. I'm eager and hungry to be filled by His Word. Um, so let's pray and then let's, let's dive in this morning. Mm, Heavenly Father, we come to Your Word that we might be filled. As Your Son Jesus said, we do not live on bread alone. We do not live on breakfast alone but we live on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we don't come this morning for a sermon. We don't come for uh, human words, Lord. We come to hear your word. We come to, to chew on, to digest and be filled and nourished by your word this morning. So I pray that you would fill us with hunger, that we might desire your word this morning, that we would be filled with it and satisfied that we'd be transformed by your word, that we'd be shaped by it, that we'd be encouraged by it. Thank you that your word is everything we need for godliness, for holiness, for equipping, for the life of faith. And so we want to come to it with reverence this morning. We want to come to it with hunger this morning. That we may be filled by you and your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, so we've been journeying through the, the letters of Jesus to the seven churches uh, of Asia Minor, of the Roman province of Asia, uh, today modern day part of Turkey. Uh, and, and so today we're, we're up to the church in Philadelphia. And so in this letter we, we hear again that line, I know your deeds. Jesus says, I know your deeds. And so we touched on this at the very beginning of that series, but I just want to come back to that, that, that line, that phrase now that we're drawing towards the end and just highlight that Jesus knows. In this letter, he says, I know your deeds. He says, I know that you have little strength. In the other letters through Revelation, he says, I know your deeds. I know your affliction and your, po and your poverty. I know the slander of others. I know where you live, and this is more about knowing the context in which we exist, not just our address, although I'm sure he knows that. Uh, he says, uh, I know your love that you have for others. I know the faith that you live. I know the service that you're living out. I know the perseverance that you have. Uh, elsewhere in the letter to Thyatira, Jesus uh, reminds us that he searches hearts and minds. And so I want us to grab this morning, to be reminded this morning as we begin to explore this letter, that we are known by Jesus. I am known by Jesus. You are known and loved by Jesus. As I was thinking about that this week, it reminded me of, of the couple times in my life when uh, I've received, a, I would call it a prophetic word, we might call it a word of encouragement, 
Uh, we might have different language around that, but, but I've re- received a prophetic word so relevant that the content is so relevant to my life situation that speaks so directly to me that ironically the content becomes irrelevant. And what I mean by that is that the word is so relevant to, to the thoughts of my mind from a person that couldn't possibly have known them, that it must have come from God, that the content actually becomes irrelevant because the message I receive is Jesus knows me. Not just he knows me, he knows my thoughts, he, he knows my heart, he knows my fears and anxieties. He knows my strengths and my weaknesses. Jesus knows us. And I don't know about you, but I, I love that kind of word for myself right now. There's kind of, I'd love to know his direction and stuff like that, but what he wants us to know is that he knows. Even when we're not receiving those specific words from God, he still knows. He knows what no one else knows about you. He knows your fears. He knows your anxieties. He knows your hopes. He knows your dreams. He knows your failures. He knows your hidden strength. He knows your faith. He knows your perseverance. He knows your sin. He knows the areas of your life where you're fighting hard to overcome sin. He knows you. And he loves you. And so this is what we see all throughout these letters, that Jesus knows his church. And so there's no letter here, I'll flip through to the end of Revelation, and there's no letter to the church at Yass, no letter to the church on 50 Laidlaw Street. But what we can take away from this, as we're going to dive more specifically into this letter, but what we can take away from all these letters is that Jesus knows us as a church and he knows us as individuals. And so Jesus knows Philadelphia, the city, and he knows the church in Philadelphia. And he knows that Philadelphia is a shaken city with a shaken church. The beginning of verse 7 says to the angel of the church of Philadelphia, right. Jesus sends this message to the church in Philadelphia, which is in the youngest of these seven cities. We've jumped from the oldest city last week, the church at Sardis, to the youngest city at Philadelphia. Uh, And so Philadelphia was located in an area that was ideal for vineyards. There's lots of volcanic soil which apparently is great for the production of wine. It was also located on on the key kind of north-south trade route. And and so it was a a city that had a significant placement, but it was also a shaken city, because not just was it located on a significant trade route, it was located on a significant fault line in the Earth's crust. And so in the year 17 AD, or CE, depending on which time frame we want to use, 17 years after Jesus, located directly on the fault line was the city of Philadelphia. It was located directly on the fault line of an extremely catastrophic earthquake. The city was shaken to bits. Uh, So much so that the, the typically unmerciful Roman emperor at the time uh, allowed them to not pay taxes for five years so that the city would have a chance to recover. In the year 60 AD, so 43 years or so after that, there was another earthquake, not, not so focused on Philadelphia, but still one that shook the city 
to bits. And, and as you read the literature about Philadelphia, it, it's almost like they never really built permanent buildings again because they just kind of constantly shook down and most people lived out in the countryside and just did trade in the city. Adding to that, in the year 92 AD, so, so we're talking a matter of a handful of years before uh, Jesus revealed himself to the Apostle John and he wrote Revelation as a result to the churches. In the year 92 AD, the Emperor Domitian commanded that great production be cut in half across the entire empire. Now, this kind of seemed like a crazy decision and, and historians kind of wrestle with why would he do that and, and the guess that they come up with is that he wanted people to shift to producing grain to feed their armies rather than producing wine to get their armies drunk, I guess. And, and so, empire-wide, that might have been some sense to it, but what it did to Philadelphia was devastate their economy because they were dependent on their vineyards. And so... They were physically shaken. They were politically shaken. They were economically shaken. And their trust was shaken as well because Philadelphia had been an extremely pro-emperor city. And he pulled the economic rug from under them. So the city was shaken and the church was also shaken by opposition and persecution on top of all the shaking of their city. And so Jesus knows Philadelphia. He knows the church in Philadelphia. He knows it's a shaken city with a shaken church. And I thought about that that this week. I thought, well, we haven't experienced earthquakes. Significant ones. Every now and again, you see on Yas Notice Board, did someone feel that earthquake? My answer is always no. I never seem to be able to feel it. We haven't experienced earthquakes. We haven't experienced the emperor halving our production on what seems like a whim. But we've been shaken. We've had a pandemic shake the world. We've had it shake the church. And and so now it feels like we're kind of back on track. Like the restrictions have lifted to the point that we're back on track. But... But I just want to ask you this morning, and you can answer to this self, do you still feel a little bit shaken? It's like it's over, but it's not over. It's like, well, we're back to normal, whatever that is, but we're not back to normal. We're not back to where we were before this thing shook our world. And so I'm not saying, I'm not comparing apples to apples, but I, but I think that this message to a shaken church is so relevant to us this morning. You know, last week I said, well, I think this is the most relevant message to us, but the truth is they're all relevant in their own way. It's interesting that to this shaken city, this is the one letter that contains no rebuke, no correction, This letter is all about who Jesus is for the church. This letter is all about holding on to him when we are shaken. It's all about who Jesus is and who he is to hang on to. And so who is Jesus for the shaken church? Well, he says to the angel of the church, In Philadelphia, write, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David, who, sorry, when he opens, what he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, 
no one can open. And so these are the words of him who is holy and true. Jesus always begins his letters with revealing something about himself that is so key to what the city needs to hear. And usually that's a reference back to the vision that John had of Jesus in Revelation 1, but this one isn't entirely. But but those words, holy and true, in a sense, sum up everything that is revealed about Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. But but it's a little bit deeper, it's a little bit more significant than our English translations lead us to believe. Because in the Greek, there's the word the, but for holy, or in technical terms, the definite article. So he's not a holy one, he's not a true one, he's the holy one, he is the true one. And so Jesus, the way he says this to, to John to write to the church in Philadelphia, he says, I am. These are the words of the true one, the holy one. This is the language that can only be used of God. And so this is a clear claim from Jesus to be God. But it's not just that. It's a, it's a clear claim of Jesus about the kind of God that God is. He's the holy one. There is no other one as holy as him. There's no other one as set apart as him. There's no one as pure as him. And he is the true one. That means he doesn't lie, but but it more means that he is dependable, that he's trustworthy, that he holds true when all else might fail. He is unshakable when everything else can be shaken and jesus says i hold the key of david now in revelation chapter 1 that there was a reference to keys in revelation 1 18 but it's a different kind of key there jesus there says i am the living one i was dead and now look i'm alive forever and ever and i hold the keys of death and hades but but here in his letter to the church of philadelphia is saying i hold the key of david now a good question to ask yourself whenever you find a key is i wonder what it opens i wonder who it belongs to and so this is obviously messianic language. That, that is that, that the, the Jewish people were promised a Messiah in the line of David. And so this is at least Jesus saying, well, that's me. I'm holding that key of David. But, but there's more than that. There's always more than that. And, and we can find the, the, the reference to this key in Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22, this exact same language. I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. And so this is a a prophetic message about Jesus taking the key off the steward to the house of David and giving it to another. And so Jesus is saying, I'm taking up that key. The key that when I open something, no one can shut it. And when I shut it, no one can open. And so to hold the key is to have authority over who enters and who doesn't enter. And so I've got keys and it's one of those things, isn't it? We, we check the house. We've got, you know, often these days it's phone. Have I got my wallet? Have I got my keys? The phone seems to be 
consuming the wallet. Maybe one day it'll consume the key and it'll just be, have I got my all-purpose device? But we still generally carry a bunch of keys. And so the keys give authority to open and close. If I give you this key, I give you authority to open and close the door of my car. If I give you this key, I give you authority to open and close the door of my house. If I give you this key, I give you authority to open and close that back room door there that used to be our office. I've still got it on there, even though a long time ago it stopped being the office. If I give you this key, I'm giving you authority to open and close the door of the church. Keys equal authority over who may enter. And so Jesus says when he opens the door, no one else can shut it. See, there's, there's multiples of this key. There's a whole bunch of people that have this key. There's a few that have that key. You know, there's myself and my wife have this key. There's, there's uh, a few others. When my children are old enough, they'll probably get their own key. But Jesus is saying when he opens something, no one else can shut it. There's no other key. Uh, when he shuts something, no one else can open it. There is no other key. He doesn't just hold some keys. He holds the key. And so uh, a couple of weeks ago, I went to a, a preaching conference. I didn't say that last week because I didn't want to raise expectations too highly of my preaching. Uh, and, and this wasn't so much mentioned at the conference, but, but one of the key things they teach you about preaching often is there's got to be a big idea. There's got to be something that people can grasp and take away and, and that's the message and they can hang on to that. And I think that's a good idea. That's, that's, that's good preaching and I try to do that. Uh, but sometimes, you know, we can't constrain a passage of Scripture to, to that one thing. Uh, and so that, this message, I think there's a few things that unfold before us in this passage. But if there's one thing, if there is that one thing I want you to take away this morning, it's, it's that line. He holds the key. He holds the key. What he opens, no one else can shut. And what he shuts, no one else can open. And so he holds the key of your destiny. He holds the key of my destiny. Our destiny is in his hands. And so he is the one that opens the door. He is the one that opens every door that he wants us to walk through. He is the one that closes every door that he doesn't want us to walk through. And so this is his message to the church at Philadelphia. He wants them to know that he's the Holy One, that he's the true one, that he is the one that holds the key. And so he goes on in this message in verse 8 and says, I know your deeds. See, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. And so Jesus knows the church. He knows that they have little strength. But he says, yet they have stayed true. The true one says to the church, 
in Philadelphia, you have little strength, but I know you've stayed true to me. I know you've stayed true to my word, and I know you've stayed true to my name. And so Jesus is saying to this church at Philadelphia that might have felt small and insignificant. It's not like the church at Sardis where they had a reputation for significance that may have been well beyond the reality. The church at Philadelphia feels small and weak and insignificant. And Jesus knows that. But he says to them, it's not about how strong we are or how big we are or how significant we are. Jesus doesn't celebrate those things. Jesus celebrates the church's faithfulness to him. He says, I know you have little strength, but you've been faithful to my name. And he says, I've opened a door before the church that no one can shut because he holds the key. And so they have little strength, but it's not their job to keep the door open. Don't know if you've ever been in that situation where someone's trying to close the door and, and you're trying to, trying to open it, you're trying to get your foot in the door, you're trying to wedge it open. And, and so I wonder if that's where the church at Philadelphia has been in their minds, where they've, they've been trying to hold this door open. That they've been trying to sustain something that Jesus is saying to them, I've opened the door before you. you. You don't need to put your shoulder to it. You don't need to try and jam your foot in it to stop it from closing. He says, I've opened the door. No one else can close that door. Keeping the door open isn't their job. And so Jesus is saying to the church, regardless of opposition, regardless of earthquakes, regardless of persecution, regardless of plague, regardless of slander, regardless of, of failure, the door that Jesus has opened for them cannot be shut by another. And so this doorway is to ultimately their final destiny, that destiny at the end when Jesus returns and winds up history. But it also reminds us about every door that Jesus opens. It reminds us about his plans and his purposes. It reminds us that no one can shut the doors that Jesus opens for us. That no one can open the doors that Jesus has closed. He holds the key to our destiny and so we can trust him. He holds the key. So we don't have to worry if we've missed it, if our opportunity has come and gone, if we've kind of had the door of our purpose in life closed on us, that if Jesus, what he wanted us to do has been closed and now we can't get back there. If Jesus has a calling, if he has a purpose, if he has a door that is a doorway he wants us to walk through, then no one else can close it. And we also don't have to waste effort trying to force doors open that Jesus has closed. He is the one that holds the key. He holds the key. And so this shaken church has experienced opposition. 
We read that in, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 9. And as we read this, I want you to be thinking about some opposition that you might have had in your life. I want you to be thinking about what the, the but, 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 but these people. Yes, Pastor Nick, Jesus will open the door, but, but what's, what about these people that keep getting in the way? Some of us might have those people in our life. Those people might live in our head sometimes. And so I wonder if the, the church in Philadelphia is thinking, well, but yes, Jesus, the door is open, but, but what about that synagogue? The people that are meant to be your people, but they keep attacking the church. And so Jesus says in verse 9, I will make those who are the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. And so Jesus essentially reminds them that vindication belongs to the Lord. We met a synagogue of Satan uh, in the letter to the church at Sardis. This doesn't necessarily mean that the synagogue, the, 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 the gathering of Jewish people is possessed demonically by Satan. It may or may not. But what it means is that they're opposing God. That they claim to be Jews, which means a, a claim to be God's people, but they've rejected Jesus, they've rejected his church, and so they're opposing God's will. They're opposing God's church. And so when you become an enemy of the church, whether you know it or not, you're partnering with Satan. Because Satan is enemy number one of the church. And so this isn't an anti-Semitic statement. This is just Jesus relaying the reality that the, the synagogue that comes against the church is no true group of God's people. They're in fact partnering with Satan. And so when you're attacked, when you're persecuted, when people come against you, the, the, if you're anything like me, you want to react. You want to fight back. You think, what do I do? How do I prove to them that we're right? How do we get revenge? Well, Jesus is saying, leave it to me. He will make the synagogue acknowledge that Jesus loves the church. Is this now? I mean, not now, but Philadelphia is now. Is this like next week? the synagogue are going to march down to church on Sunday morning and bow down before them and say, we're wrong, you're right, Jesus is God and he loves you. Is it kind of some event in future for them where, where you know, a few people from the synagogue will start to realize that Jesus is the Messiah, that, that the gospel the church was sharing was the truth? Or is this some kind of end times thing where, where we're told that every knee shall bow and acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord? Well, Jesus doesn't tell us. He doesn't give us the when, but he assures us of the what. Those that oppose the church, those that oppose those who are faithful to Jesus, will at some point acknowledge that Jesus loves them, that Jesus loves the church, that they held to the truth. And so how do we respond? We, we leave it to Jesus, because vindication belongs to the Lord. In Psalm 17, verse 2, the psalmist says, Let my vindication come from you. May your eyes see what is right. 
And the psalmist wrestled with, you know, David and the other psalmist wrestled deeply with, what do we do when people oppose us when we're doing what God wants us to do? And so this is David's prayer. Let my vindication come from you. May your eyes see what is right. In Psalm 37, oops, too far. We get another great encouragement in this space. Again, David is wrestling with this thought of what to do. And he says to himself and to others in verse 1 of Psalm 37, Do not fret because of those who are evil, or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will wither soon. Like green plants, they will soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him, and He will do this. He will make your righteousness Sorry, he will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord. When we're tempted to lash out, to fight back, to seek our own vindication, Jesus reminds us, reminds the church of Philadelphia, vindication belongs to him. David reminds us that our job is simply to be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. He says again, do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil. For those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. And so we can leave our vindication to him. When people come against us, when people accuse us, when, when people don't respond to us in the, in, the, in the way that we feel we deserve, when we feel rejected, when we feel betrayed, we can leave vindication to Him. We can leave the battle to Him. We don't have to prove that we are right and the haters are wrong. We can leave vindication to Him. As David said, when, when we seek to act out in our wrath, when we seek revenge, that, that just means that we participate in the evil. Jesus goes on to the church in Philadelphia in verse 10, and he says, Since you've kept my command to endure patiently, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. And so... Jesus is reminding them that their faithfulness is not in vain. That vindication will come from him, their faithfulness will be rewarded. He will keep them from the trial. That's going to come on the whole earth. And again, Jesus doesn't tell us about that. Is this a future thing? Is this some great persecution that, that was carried out during the Roman Empire? Because we know that there were many. And we know that the Roman world was referred to in that day as the world by many. Is this something that's passed for us or, or is this talking about the end times that are to come? We don't know, but what we can grab from it is that our faithfulness in the trials we face today are not in vain. That Jesus will keep us from 
in and through the hour of trial. He takes care of the faithful. But what's through the door? This is like a little aside that that Jesus has inserted in his letter to the church at Philadelphia to take care of their concerns about what's keeping them from the door. But now we get back to, well, what's through the door? In verse 11, he says, I'm coming soon, hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. He says he's coming soon. Which this is more a reference to his imminence, which means he could come at any moment, not a timeline of his return. He says to hold on to what you have, to continue to be faithful to his name and to his word so that they don't lose their crown. Now, I don't know about you, but when I, when I think of a crown, I think of, you know, the crown jewels that, that sit upon a ruler's head to kind of give them a sore neck and indicate their authority over others. That's not the crown that Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about the crown that someone who, who won a race in like the Olympic Games or, or the Roman Games would receive. The wreath that they would place on their head. Uh, the victor's crown. Uh, he's pointing here to, to life on the other side of the door. And so in 12 and 13, he goes on, the one who is victorious, the one, the one who receives that crown, the one who enters through the door that he has opened, he says, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write them, sorry, I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so Jesus is saying, hold on. He's coming soon. He's coming back. Stay faithful that we might not lose the victor's crown, that we might not lose our opportunity to walk through the door. And he says to those who are victorious, to those who enter through the door he's holding open, he's going to make pillars in the temple of God. Now, later on in Revelation, we, we, we read that there is no temple in heaven because God dwells openly with his people. And so this is metaphorical. This is symbolic about dwelling in the presence of God because that's what the temple was about. It was about the place in which God's presence was manifest. And so Jesus is saying, to the shaken and weak church in Philadelphia, I will make you strong pillars in the presence of God that will never be removed. He's using the temple imagery symbolic to say to a church that lived in a town that was constantly shaken to bits, saying that you will be a strong, unshakable pillar in the building that represents dwelling in the presence of God. That nothing can shake that away from you. That you will never again leave. Never having to flee or to run, but simply dwelling in His presence for eternity. 
He says he'll write the name of his God, God the Father, on them. And this is symbolic that they belong to God. This is symbolic of that vindication. It's symbolic of their identity and of God's ownership over them. He says he'll write the name of the city, the new Jerusalem, not Philadelphia, but of the new Jerusalem. That, that their identity will not be shaped by the shaken city, that their identity will not be shaped by insecurity, by, by economic insecurity, physical insecurity, but political insecurity, that their identity will be as citizens of the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, a city that cannot be shaken. And he says, I'll write my new name on them. What new name? Revelation, skip ahead a little bit. We haven't spent too much time in the future chapters of Revelation in this series, but in Revelation chapter 19, verse 16, we're told of Jesus. On his robe and on his thigh, he has written the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so Jesus, taking that title of supreme authority, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, says, I'm going to write that name on you too. But there's no status to which Jesus can hold that makes his people not worthy of having his name upon them. And so he holds the key. He has opened the door and no one can close it. Those things that we think might interrupt, that might get between us and the door, those things that we might get angry about, the opposition, the shaking, we can trust that he'll deal with that. That vindication will come from him. On the other side of the door is eternity in his manifest glorious presence. Is eternity claiming the identity that we have in him. And so what do we do now? What, what's the job of the church at Philadelphia? And more importantly today, what's, what's, what's our job now? To the shaken, to the opposed to those experiencing trials, to the weak. Jesus simply says, we found it in verse 11, I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. He says to the church that has been faithful to his word and to his name, when they've been given a whole bunch of reasons not to, he says, hold on to his word and to his name. Don't give up now. Keep going. Hold on to what you have. Let me pray. And then let's worship him. Father at least on my own behalf but I'm sure on the behalf of others I confess that I'm too often prone to fear that the door will close the doors of opportunities in this life and even the door of the hope of eternity 
thank you for the reminder this morning that your son Jesus, the Holy One, the true one, holds the key. us not just in intellect now but by your spirit in our heart in the very place of our fears and anxieties holy spirit come and remind us that jesus holds the key that he holds our destiny in his hands So, Father, by your Spirit, we pray that you give us the grace to leave vindication to the Lord. In those spaces where we're angered, where we're furious, where what we might call righteous fury bubbles up, give us grace to leave vindication to you. Help us, in the words of David, to not fret. To not fret about opposition, but also to not fret about those that might seek to come between us and the door. And with our heart fixed on eternity, on the hope that we have of being pillars in the house of God, never to be shaken. Help us to fix our hearts on the eternity of being marked with your name, being citizens of your city, belonging to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. With our heart fixed on that eternity, we pray for grace now. Though we are weak, Though we are shaken, we pray for grace to hold on, to keep going, to be faithful. May our prayers rise to you this morning. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thanks for joining us today. As you head back into your week, we want to encourage you to stay in His Word, stay in His love, and stay strong in your faith. Don't forget to keep up to date with what's happening via Facebook, Instagram, or via our website at ycbc.church. See you soon.